Time for a currency rebellion against banker Bly. RBA demands higher unemployment. Moscow Maidan averted, but beware the false flag of Zaporozhia. And Simon Crean's courage lost in modern labour. Coming up on today's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 30th of June 2023. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome, Robbie. Oh, thanks, Elisa. 30th of June. Yes. Half, halfway through the year. I thought I must have got that wrong. <laughs> no, no, halfway through the year. Yep. Well, there you go. Time End flies. In the financial year. Time flies when you're busy. And speaking of finance, today we'll be talking about uh, a number of financial matters, particularly after the um, outrageous... Uh, interruption in Commonwealth Bank uh, banking services the other day, which no doubt you've heard of, uh, and related things. And then we're going to talk about the war danger in a dramatic escalation. Uh, So don't forget to hit the like button, make a comment, share this in any way that you can to get the word out. Uh, You can also subscribe and ring the notifications bell and we'll keep you tuned of regular updates. Uh, Just quickly before we begin, uh, Elisa, I want to mention that I wasn't here last week because I was in Canberra and there was an excellent hearing of the Senate inquiry into Project Iron Boomerang, which I was able to participate in. And um, that's starting to impress the senators who need to be impressed. So if you you don't know about that project, look for the video on our um, YouTube page Mm -hmm. here where we explain Project Iron Boomerang and Glenn Isherwood's um, interviews with uh, Shane Condon. Um, but, yeah, it's the subject of a Senate inquiry right now and it's going well. And we did promise updates last week, actually, <laughs> on your trip to Canberra, so I don't oh, know if you've it? got anything else to add. We've got a whole host of new things well, to talk about, so it's been superseded. Well, well there's that, but then um, I also had discussions in the building on getting a bill. Now, we've got a bill for a bank, for a, a, uh, a National Post Office People's Bank, um, but actually getting it either introduced or having a public fight to introduce it. Mm-hmm. We won't go through all the details now, but now's the everything we talk about is going to point to that to the necessity for this. Um, we've, everything we always talk about points to the necessity for this, and there's it's going to require a fight with the banking elite, the banking lobby, and we want to have that fight. We want to have it out in the open because if that fight's out yes. in the open, the public's on our side. Well, and that is our first topic. Time for a currency rebellion against banker Bly. Um, Look, events are driving that fight to the surface. We can't not have that fight. Um, So I guess it was, was it Monday, Tuesday? I think it was Tuesday. Monday, Monday, okay. That the CBA's digital uh, payment services were down. There were no capabilities for people to transfer between their accounts uh, to pay for their fuel or their groceries or um, business activities, uh, bill regular bill payments didn't go through, things of that nature, ComSec accounts were down. So this was a, a serious and major network interruption uh, which they blamed on an update to an internal application used, so an app was updated, right, which caused a problem with the server. So you know, 
just a, a little minor thing that happens to every business every day and that this is a bank, the largest bank in the country with 15 million customers uh, that suddenly were all left in the lurch because of this problem. But it's the nature of such systems, Elisa. The more complex the system, the more vulnerable it is to small things going wrong and having a knock-on effect, right? How did Luke Skywalker blow up the Death Star? <laughs> there was one little hole and he was able to get his bomb down one little hole that got down into the, and, blew it, and blew it apart, right? Um, the, uh, that's, what, that's the nature of the system. So the issue here is not that CBA has an online banking system. No. The issue is Banker Bly. Yes, right? so what Who, did she have to say about it? Well, before, just for the historical accuracy, Banker Bly is a direct descendant of William Bly. Oh. <laughs> the captain on the bounty and the governor of New South Wales who was overthrown in the Rum Rebellion. So, now, now there's, te- there's, there's, there's nuances to both stories, especially <laughs> okay. the Rum Rebellion. Um, and if the, the, the guys who did the Rum Rebellion, which was the corrupt New South Wales constabulary, um, they weren't great guys or anything. But it's not a great record when, when William Bly had two groups of people under him both overthrowing, mm. right? <laughs> and maybe, maybe he's handed something down in his genes because this person... Anna Bly, the CEO of the Banking Association, his direct descendant, it's time for her to be overthrown. Um, she, is the, she is the mouthpiece in Australia for this uh, Pollyanna-ish attitude that we're going into this uh, banking nirvana of 100% digital. It's all good. Everyone embrace it. It's, let's all be happy. What happened on Monday shows the utter insanity of that and the insanity is in a sense not hers she's paid big money to spruik the agenda of banks they will make squillions out of 100% digital and they don't care if on any given day the system goes down because they are answerable to shareholders who want bigger profits Mm. that's their that's their only interest the insanity is from the governments allowing four big banks to drive Australia in this direction where if we don't stop it, there won't be a cash alternative for those days. Yeah, let's use all the technology that we like, but don't force the public to give up the reliable alternatives, which is what they're trying to do in the form of cash, in the form of branches, in the form of ATMs, etc. That's what that's what the lesson was. And I was talking to um, uh, Dale Webster, the independent journalist who helped get, did the, took the lead in getting up the current Senate inquiry into branch closures, and we were joking about how. When you see a day like Monday, where because it's the biggest bank, right? Oh, yeah. You've got figures here that 7.7. There's fit, Commonwealth Bank has 15 million customers. 7.7 million use ComBank according to their website, yeah. and more of that, more than that would be would pay with their cards and phones, right? Mm. When you see a day like that, that was so disruptive for a huge chunk of the economy. Um, these days, these days deserve the notoriety of bad bushfires, mm. like Ash Wednesday, Black Saturday. Let's call what happened on Monday Commonwealth Monday or CBA Monday or mm. something like that, right? Because that's the disaster that they cause. And, yeah, we've, 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 the government has allowed the banks to push us to this position of extreme vulnerability, right? I just, and I just I want to tell, can I tell the story yeah. about that you heard this morning? Um, uh, so just one case. So there's a friend of the show, Jeremy Glass, who's, who's a... a, a, a a plumber up in the border of Queensland, New South Wales, west of uh, Gundawindi. 
Um, and he uses cash and he, he notoriously likes his freedom and independence, old Jeremy. Um, but, you know, he has, to, he has to transact in the financial system. And I was just, this, what happened to him on Monday, you've got to think about multiplied thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of times around Australia mm. in terms of the productivity cost, right? So two things he told us were affected on that day. He was, he was buying a machine from Bathurst and, and he had to pay to have it shipped to him in Queensland. And um, there was options for the shipping costs that ranged from $4,000 to $12,000, right? Um, because CBA was down, he came very close to not having, not being able to tie down the, ch- the cheaper price in mm-hmm. time, and CBA. Now he he was able to do it because he actually hustled and and uh, used offered cash and whatever. But he came very close, right? So if if and his point was, if he had have lost out on the cheaper price and ended up paying five thousand more dollars, there wouldn't have even been a sorry from CBA. Mm. That's just something he would have had to wear. The second part was. And this is a more general problem. This wasn't related to Monday. This is how these banks are operating now. Um, he was describing how, in order to make payments through NetBank, you've got to like when you, there's larger payments, you you lift your um you ask permission to lift your your your, your limit on your daily transaction mm-hmm. allowance. Um, and he has to hang on the phone for ages to get someone on the phone to get permission. He has to go through all the security hoops when, when he's on the phone. Um, there's no callback service, none, right? And now, because of all the scamming going on, they've added this extra layer of stuff where he's put through the ringer of what do you want the money for, what are you buying, etc., right? And they justify this because they're trying to protect him from scams, but they're not trying to protect Jeremy, really. They're trying to protect CBA from the liability mm. that comes on them if there's scams, right? And at a certain point, um, Jeremy said, I'm not asking your permission, this is my money. I'm not asking your permission, but their attitude is, well, whoever come up with this system, their attitude is, no, this is, this has, we're, we're, we have a, um, an honorary motivation in doing this because we're trying to protect people from scams. No, no. They caused this problem by forcing people online to be exposed to scams, taking away bank branches where the people who are most vulnerable scams would prefer to bank. Mm-hmm. They caused this problem and now they're solving it at the expense of the customer. And what's, what we're have, seeing happen around Australia is the banks are increasing their productivity, which is their profitability per um, labour hour, at the expense of your productivity and my productivity and the, all of Australia's productivity. That's what's happening with these big four institutions. Now, in regard to the bank closures, before we move on, um, Bly was all over the radio this week as well, and she was citing this so-called new branch closure protocol, and we've mentioned this in our media release, which people can find online. We called it um, Anna Bly's bank branch closure is a swifty, not a solution. She's pulling a swifty. The, the Australian Banking Association has had a bank branch closure protocol for 20 years in the banking code of practice, for 20 years. They reported this this week as, oh, we'll come up with this branch closure protocol. No, what they've done is they've tweaked it from the old one, added a few extra layers, but the premise remains the same. We're still going to close branches, but this new protocol means we're going to communicate it slightly better, mm. give you slightly more notice, etc., etc., etc. Which is also not new. That came out of the regional banking task. Well, that's what that's what they're mm. complying with, right? And But the juggernaut... in, the, in they're open. The juggernaut of bank branch closures will continue unabated in their view, right? And it was funny listening to Anna Bly being interviewed on 2GB because 2GB accepted 
the lie, basically, that this was some new solution, but they didn't accept it would make any difference. And the particular interview, I don't know his name, he was a stand-in for um, Ben Fordham. Um, he was giving Anna Bly a really hard time. But in that interview, Anna Bly said this, she can't help herself. Mm. She goes, um, customers are overwhelmed, this is a quote, overwhelmingly jumping into the opportunity of digital banking. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, plenty do. Plenty do casually and whatever. But the people that are losing their branches and ATMs, etc., mm. and are complaining about it, are the reason we have an inquiry, have not overwhelmingly jumped into that. They yeah. are being forced into it. They're terrified of what they're being exposed to. And some token extra layer on a, on a net bank phone service, just so, AM, so CBA can say to its lawyers, we, we did our due diligence. Mm. It's not our liability is not going to solve that problem. And certainly on um, Tuesday after this Monday disruption, everyone, I, I was in two shops, and in two shops in a row, the people at the counter, the people behind the counter, they were all discussing this, but it led on to other things, like the fact that there's a lot of elderly people in this community and the bank branch isn't there and, and people raising the fact that they've tried all these bank branches they thought they could go to and they had disappeared. And you were on uh, Radio Friday night, ABC Radio ABC. in Perth, to talk about that too. Thursday night. In, I was in Parliament House, I had to step out of the hearing that I was attending to, to do this and I got interrupted by security, which was a bit of a pain. Um, but they, they went with it, ABC in Perth. They called it the, the, uh, the joys of live radio. Um, but that was, that, that was the issue, the... Uh, Bank West, which is a subsidiary of CBA, um, has just announced they're closing the Subiaco branch that's been there for 60 years, right? And um, uh, people were all in a tiz about this because there's been so many branch closures in Western Australia. And, of course, the, the people that are rightly the most up in arms are the elderly. So I was able to make a few points, some of which I borrowed from Dale Webster. Um, and, and the point that, that I borrowed from her, which... I thought is a really profound one that Dale made. We're used to, like, we all know there's big four banks in Australia and they are big banks, right? They're big mega institutions. They are the big powerful banks they are now on the backs of the hardworking Australians who are now the elderly. Mm. The work, the industry, the endeavour of those people who are now the elderly made these banks what they are. And yet, in, their, in those customers' time of maximum vulnerability, they are yanking the rug, rug out from under them and saying, you are going to, we're going to take away from you the absolute certainty that comes with face-to-face -face banking. Before digital, nobody who did banking, the only thing you ever worried about was, am I going to be the one in a billion who may be in here when some robber comes in with a mask on? <laughs> because the actual banking transaction was completely sound. You knew it had been done, etc. And if some, if there was an occasional rogue teller who robbed you, the bank would automatically pay that. That would never be an issue, right? Everything about it was absolutely certain. And they're taking that, they're yanking it away from those people and saying, "You are now going to go into the world of digital, where everything is uncertain. You're going to be scratching for your glasses to make sure you put those numbers in correctly, so you don't you don't make it too big or too small or whatever, stuff it up." Um, you're going to have difficulty logging in and then getting a, a confirmation text on your phone. And if it's too late, and then make it, I've got to put that number in there and then it all times out. You're going to go through all of that rubbish. And then worse, on top of that, you will occasionally see on Facebook videos 
of massive phone centres in places like India where the smartest tech kids in the world, every single one of those in that room, are there to scam you. Mm. They are looking, they are constantly probing ways to find you and your vulnerabilities and take all your money out of your account. And you know that, and you know you're the, you are their number one target, and your bastard bank is saying, that's your new world. And these are not banks that are making any less profits out of you. They're making as much, if not more, than ever. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what I was able to explain on... Um, on uh, ABC Radio, and it absolutely resonated, resonated with the people of Perth. And you were also brought in on 2SM Radio in Sydney on Wednesday on the same subject too, which is good. Yeah. Though, no, the media, this is, we've struck a chord here. I mean, this, we, we've, we've addressed a really serious issue. We, we saw that, well, and credit again to Dale Webster and Martin North, they, they blew the whistle. They, they called this regional banking task force for what it was, pathetic, mm-hmm. and said we need a proper one. And, and now we have a proper inquiry. It's kicking goals. It's, it's addressing a real issue. And because it's a real issue and it resonates with the public, the media not just have to report it, they want to report it. Mm, no, for sure. Um, now, sticking on banking issues, and you can also read more about this in the Australian Alert Service this week, um, RBA demands higher unemployment. And if I pose the question to our viewers, what's better for the economy? More people working or fewer people working? You would think I was crazy to even ask the question. I mean, it's ridiculous. But the RBA is a little confused and they're confused because they're, on one hand, you know, you've got the question of the actual real economy, but that's not what's on their mind. What's on their mind is financial stability, right? Balancing the books, um, keeping the financial even keel, even despite the fact that the entire global financial system is um, completely bankrupt and is collapsing. Um, but nevertheless, they're trying to juggle hot potatoes. And the RBA Deputy Governor Michelle Bullock uh, at the Australian Industry Group on the 20th of June talked about um, their single tool of interest rates to get down inflation, which is supposed to somehow make all of our lives better if it worked, which of course it is not. Um, She said, we are hoping that we can bring inflation down a bit more gradually, but the unemployment rate will have to rise. Now, it's 3.6% unemployment now. Um, They're expecting at the RBA that it will go to 4.5% by late 2024 as a part of getting inflation down to target by mid-2025, which still means it's only (laughs) mid-2023 that we got two more years of pain um, before it comes back down to target. Um, Two more more years of ratcheting down. The pain is going to continue forever. Oh, well, yeah, (laughs) for sure, if they continue with this approach. So she and her... You know, the, the only justification they give for this is that, well, <clears throat> if we don't do it now, it's going to be worse later. <laughs> um, if inflation becomes entrenched, she said it would be very costly to reduce later, involving even higher interest rates and a larger rise in unemployment. The solution, she said, requires empl- employment and the economy more generally, generally to grow at a below trend pace for a while. So somehow you're supposed to get economic improvement um, for the people generally by, you know, crushing everything down. On the other hand, China, for instance, at the moment is announcing that they're actually cutting interest rates. But of course, they do it selectively. They do it in the actual productive sectors of the economy. 
they do it in terms of credit, new credit going into building infrastructure, which increases actual productivity in terms of what the nation as a whole is producing, not on the banking ledger by having an austerity approach to cutting back what we're spending so it seems like each worker's more productive because there's less inputs for a greater or the same output. Um, And, yeah, so and China has other things like price controls. You have other approaches. We've been talking about it. We put it into the Reserve Bank um, inquiry to say, look, or review, I should say, we don't need to have this single sledgehammer approach of crushing Australian citizens and mortgage holders in particular to bring down inflation. There are other ways and effective ways to do it. And just to make the point that it's really not effective what they're doing right now, um, Brian Tui, veteran um, journalist in this country, had an article on the 21st for Pearls and Irritations and he reported on a freedom of information request by the Australia Institute Um, And this um, freedom of information request um, documented that the RBA ran three scenarios of how much they could raise interest rates by back in uh, February. One left the cash rate at 3.35%. The second one lifted it to 4.8% by August and the toughest one raised it to 4.8% by May. And as Tui said, all three scenarios were projected to make little difference to inflation but have a significant adverse impact on unemployment and increase the risk of a recession. So in other words, it made no difference whatsoever whether they increased a little bit or a lot on inflation. Nothing. Diddly. But for the average person, for their employment, for the risk of a recession for the overall economy... Uh, it worsened it in every case. Yeah. Um, the the way uh, Bullock, Michelle Bullock, the Deputy Governor, so casually talked about um, the need, they, they will be achieving their goals when unemployment goes up, it tells you everything you need to know about what's wrong with the system. Because unemployment going up is thousands of people. What, what she's... What she's What's the Reserve Bank's metric needs thousands of people to be told by their employer, you don't have a job. Mm. And all the shock and anxiety that comes with that. And then those people have to go back to their families and look at their books and say, how do we afford the mortgage? How do we afford mm. the... What do I have to do to get a new job, right? And then scramble to, to see... And, and you know, the, the poor old uh, spouse has to go in through the Centrelink mill either get on the phone or go find one of those few Centrelink branches and queue up for hours and hours or be on the way. Like, see the knock-on effect, right? Mm. They want to. They deliberately try to impose that on the economy to achieve their metric. Now, I don't know if we can actually provide an image of this. Maybe we can. I'll, I'll help the producer, but I want to describe it. There's, in the late 70s, I've seen the footage of this. In the late 70s, early 80s in London, economists produced a model of an economy, but it was a physical model. And it was like a big machine and essentially had all these um, containers where water would flow. And so the different containers represented different parts of the financial system Mm. and the economy. And they had these, they tried to engineer this so they could have these levers and you could see the effect of of, um, the water, you know, a, a decision here 
water would flow into that area, etc. And they were Drain trying to out. they were trying to model the economy, mm. right? Um, and what they produced was a machine, and it was pretty lousy. But can I tell you, modern computer-based models are just a more sophisticated version of that, right? But the main thing is that water that's flowing into these different containers, that is the lives of thousands and thousands and thousands of human beings. And economists are notorious for totally discounting the human factor and stepping back and, say, and, and talking about economic statistics as if they are just um, you know, ratios of, of, of uh, fuel purity or whatever, rather than these are the lives of people. And that's what we saw coming out of um, uh, Michelle Bullock's mouth the other day, yeah. right? They have set up an economy that's divorced from the financial system. And you said something at the beginning, I was going to sort of pick you up on, but elaborate, that the RBA's concern is financial stability. Don't be fooled by them saying that. They're not, they, don't want to, they don't want financial stability. They want to stabilise our sick financial system. Mm-hmm. The financial system is sick. It needs to be overhauled. They've got no interest in overhauling it. They, they are happy with a system where you've got elite private banks like our big four being able to suck the wealth out of Australia and speculate like crazy to maximise their profits, which builds up this massive debt, domestic bu- debt bubble, global debt bubble, derivatives debt bubble. The system is completely overladen with unpayable debt and sick. It needs to be overhauled along the lines that we've been talking about. They do not want to do that. They're, all their policies are geared to stabilising mm. that. Right. Whereas we're saying overhaul the system. And what do we need to do? We need to take away the power of the big four banks. And I, I had a discussion with, a, with a, a person yesterday who knows the Australian business landscape backwards. He's been involved in the lobbying sphere, especially in relation to small business for decades and decades and decades. He knows the banking system backwards. He's been taking it on for years. And he described to me that he's come to the conclusion that the number one problem in Australia is the banks have more power than the governments. And when the governments ever try and take them on, the banks will just turn off the credit taps for Australia and start starving the country of credit until the governments succumb. And that's why we've got to break their power because until, unless we break their power, we won't be able to overhaul the system. And the way to overhaul the system is bring in a public bank, a national bank, where the, which is not motivated by profit. It will profit, but that's not its motivation. It's motivated by what needs to be done investment-wise for the good of Australia, like we had the Commonwealth Bank for 84 years, and also it can be something that forces the private banks to compete on service, on standards, etc. And and but its mere existence breaks their power, right? And that's when we'll get start getting a change to this. Because until then, we're going to be in at the mercy of them and the RBA and these kind of mm. technocratic idiots. And there are dangers associated with um, a financial system that's top-heavy in the way you've described and that is uh, implicitly unstable and can collapse at any moment. And one of those big dangers comes in the realm of geopolitics. Yep. How do you play one rival off against the other in order to regain the upper hand, particularly if the financial systems and the control of the finan- wielded through the financial system is at jeopardy? So we're moving on to, we want to talk about the latest on the war front um, on our topic, Moscow Maidan averted, but beware the false flag of Zaporozhia. Um, Now, viewers would no doubt be aware of the um, advance of Yevgeny Prigozhin and his Wagner group, the Wagner Private Military Company, 
um, who um, moved in and took over the command centre of Russia's southern military district in Rostov-on-Don um, last weekend and began a march towards Moscow um, with the implicit intention to um, take over Moscow, run a coup, etc. Um, this actually began uh, because Prigozhin, and not really all of his unit even, many mm. of them didn't actually support the intention for this manoeuvre, many of them weren't apparently aware of it, but Prigozhin came into conflict, conflict with the Russian military because they have been playing a key role on the front uh, lines of the special military operation working as a contractor to the Russian military. But they came into conflict conflict with the Russian military after uh, the so-called meat grinder war in Bakhmut came to a conclusion. And as the Donbass region of Ukraine um, came under Russian territory after the referenda that were held, um, this military outfit was not allowed to be... Um, operating on Russian soil. So as a contractor, they were able to do that before it was mm. named as Russian soil. So there were moves by the Russian military to bring uh, this unit, the Wagner unit, under Ministry of Defence um, operational control, which Prigozhin wasn't too happy with. Um, evidently, his ego was being stroked by people in Ukrainian intelligence as well as Western intelligence more broadly. And we're going to hear from um, Scott Ritter, um, the fellow who infamously or famously exposed the um, lie of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq shortly on that point. Um, but short story is that the situation was de-escalated when Russian President Putin spoke to the President of Belarus, Lukashenko, and it was negotiated that Prigozhin could have um, exiled to Belarus. Uh, and the thing, you know, didn't eventuate, and it would have been difficult for it to eventuate, as Scott Ritter, among others, have said, because of the fact that this military unit depended for all of its inputs and for its very existence on the Russian military anyway. Um, but a couple of uh, very interesting things about this. Um, U.S. intelligence actually, and this came out in the press, in the uh, American press just over this last week, U.S. intelligence actually knew that this was in the mm. works, which already is a giveaway to their potential involvement. In March, so that, you know, that was a while ago, a few months back in March, the Jamestown Foundation put out a publication headlined, Going Beyond Mercenaries... Is Prigozhin preparing for a power struggle in Russia? And this outfit, the Jamestown Foundation, had held a joint seminar with the Hudson Institute back in February, headlined Preparing for the Dissolution of the Russian Federation, which actually is pushing and has been for a while to split Russia into 41 smaller states. And this is part of a broader and long-term um, dream of Lush London and Washington for, you know, regime change in Russia, which is why we're using the terminology uh, Moscow Maidan. The Maidan yeah. was a coup against uh, the government of Ukraine and they brought in their men Zelensky. Um, now they want to do the same with Putin. And I'll just add that um, back in April, the British Royal United Service Institute, RUSI, had actually released a report alleging that Russia may manufacture a radiological incident at the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. 
And to deter Russia from doing that, it called for the West to make clear that this would cause a massive response. And this is the same outfit that a year earlier was promoting that the West should actually provoke a nuclear conflict with Russia over Crimea, knowing, supposedly knowing, that Russia would ultimately back down, which is not necessarily true because uh, Dmitry Trenin from the Russian International Affairs Council just came out this week saying, look, the biggest danger right now of a nuclear conflict or exchange being provoked is the mistaken... um, understanding in the West, the the, the mistaken assumption assumption in the West that Russia would never use nuclear weapons. In reality, Russia's nuclear doctrine allows for the use of nuclear weapons if there is an existential threat to the Russian state. Um, So right now, Kiev and um, Zelensky are actually putting out the warning saying that uh, Russia's about to blow up the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant. This is going to be their latest manoeuvre against Ukraine. And this was timed, however, which really is another giveaway, mm. with a new US resolution tabled in the Senate by Senator Lindsey Graham and Richard Blumenthal saying that if Russia sabotages the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant, resulting in the spread of radiation to NATO member countries... NATO would be obliged to uh, intervene under its Article 5 in the treaty where they must respond, all NATO members would have to respond against the alleged perpetrator being Russia, yep. probably without proof. That, this is incredibly dangerous, Elisa. Just imagine, think about 9-11 and all the, there's been naturally a lot of theories about, you know, who knew what 9-11, you know, um, We've called it an inside job, but how does it act, how does it actually play out, uh, kind of thing? Imagine if someone, uh, two congressmen before nine eleven, had passed a resolution, sponsored a resolution saying, if terrorists, if Middle Eastern terrorists attack the World Trade Center in New York City, America will respond by invading Iraq. <laughs> and if they had to pass that resolution, and then nine eleven played out as it did. Mm-hmm. And America did respond by invading Iraq. Don't you think everyone would realise, well, hang on, those two guys were in on it, right? And whoever they're part of were in on it. This is what they're setting up something that explicit in the case of they've identified the power plant, right? Essentially, there's one they're talking about. It's the biggest, I think it's the biggest nuclear power plant in the world, Zaporozhia. Um, It's been, everyone who's heard of this plant knows it's been an issue from almost day one in this war, right? But it was never, I mean, the Russians are the world's leaders among the world's leaders in nuclear technology. Certainly, exporters of nuclear technology. There's no way they're going to deliberately destroy a nuclear power plant. They went they went to secure it straight away to stop it from being destroyed. But you've got these madmen, actual Nazis around Zelensky, and they are actual Nazis, and they do have this, um, you know, uh, uh, blood and soil kind of mentality of deep seated hatred against. Russians, existential hatred against Russians. And they're the ones that have been pushing to join NATO, right? They've been begging to join NATO. And the smarter people involved in NATO who actually don't want a war know that that's the final straw, right? If, if, if Ukraine joins NATO, that's what this whole thing's about. But he is, these two guys in the US Congress are putting up this resolution to make an attack on that power plant 
the and if if the radiation wafts into mm. into Europe, of course it will, mm. right? Remember Chernobyl? A little bit. Of course, it's going to happen. It may not be that. It may not be that damaging, but it's going to happen, right? And oh, then the Article Five comes into effect, which means Ukraine is effectively being treated as a member for NATO, member of NATO. Mm. That's what they want to do. These are these look. Lindsey Graham and his 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 partner in crime used to be John McCain before he died. Mm. They were involved as these senators in stoking, laying the foundation for every damn disastrous war America's been in for the last twenty years, including and especially the Maidan one that set this off in in Ukraine back in twenty fourteen. They were there on the spot stirring this up then. But then they were a few years earlier, and they're all through the Syria. Uh, issue. They were also there, right? Posing with terrorists. Um, you know, remember the, the 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 moderate rebels who in rally were hardcore head head chopping terrorists. Um, that's the sort of thing that these 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 people specialise in. And we are forget a red line. We we are way on the edge of something else. And the the worry uh, is this is all being done within a time frame. And that time frame, Elisa, being there's a NATO summit coming up in Vilnius in. Well, probably less than two weeks now. Mm. Our prime minister wasn't going to go. We'll talk about this more later. Our prime minister wasn't mm. going to go. The prime minister of New Zealand wasn't going to go. They came under both came under pressure when they met each other a few weeks ago. Then they announced, "No, no, we are going," because there's a full court press to by all the countries that want to, um, you know, march that that are being pressured to march in lockstep with the uh, Anglo-Americans on this, and they're making a big deal about this NATO summit. And all this scenario we're talking about, this false, possible false flag, the time frame is possibly before that summit, mm. right? So um, yeah, that's pay 11th, attention, 11th folks. To 12th, 11th to 12th of July is that summit. Yeah, we better um, listen to Mr Ritter Yeah, we're going to listen to Scott Ritter and then we're going to talk about how this can actually be de-escalated. Two days ago, the Ukrainian intelligence service, they had a series of covert cells that were being positioned in Moscow, were uncovered by the FSB. Russian security and rounded up. It appears that these cells were supposed to be in place in Moscow so that as Prigozhin began to move towards Moscow, they would carry out a series of attacks, explosions, terrorist events that would terrorize the Russian people, reinforce the notion that Putin was an ineffective leader, and therefore people of Moscow would welcome Wagner with open arms. This is a concerted effort between Wagner, the Ukrainian intelligence service, and their Western sponsors, in particular the British to achieve what they've always been looking for, which is what they call a Moscow Maidan moment. Kudos to them. They recruited Prigozhin. There's no doubt in my mind that Yevgeny Prigozhin is working on behalf of foreign intelligence services, carrying out their tasks, and that task is to collapse the government of Vladimir Putin. I personally believe that he won't succeed, but that's what's happening this morning. So now, you know, you might think, from that discussion that this is hopeless. Well, it's absolutely not. And someone who showed what's possible is John F. Kennedy. And we want to talk a little bit about um, yep. his approach right now, borrowing from his nephew, um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., uh, who is going to contest he's a the re- Democratic Party presidential nomination. He's a, yeah, he's a Democratic Party presidential pre-candidate, I think they call it. Uh, so he gave a speech, uh, which you can find online, really worth listening to, uh, called Peace and Diplomacy. It is the best... I was I was awed listening to this. It's the best American presidential foreign policy speech mm. that has been made since the Kennedys. 
in the 60s. Seriously, that good. And it's not just the words, yeah. Elisa, it's the delivery. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has clearly internalised this. this. This is coming from his soul, what he's expressing to his fellow Americans as the, the way to avert global catastrophe in terms of a nuclear war. Yeah, I mean, he, he was pulling out all kinds of things from history, things that we yeah. always cite, like, you know, we go not abroad in search of monsters to destroy and brought together a whole raft of history. So we'll put the link below. Take the 50 minutes and watch it. It's really, really good. Um, so in the clip, I just want to play one clip and highlight a few other things. But he, talk, he was talking about the speech that JFK gave at, at the American University 60 years ago this month. Um, and how that turned the nation around on the push for, which JFK was pushing for, the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. And so he's, just prior to what he's saying in this clip, he's talking about how Kennedy knew he was surrounded by people in the White House, in particularly the intelligence community, that did not want peace. Yeah. And so he established, they established the hotline between him and Khrushchev, and the Russian leader, and they moved very fast to announce this treaty. Um, after they, they got it all sorted, they announced it, they, he knew that the State Department and Pentagon would revolt, which they did. And the problem he had to deal with was that 80% of the population were also exposed because a bit like Australia today on something like China, you know, people have just had been completely brainwashed about the Russians. They'd been demonised. Um, so I want you to listen to this clip where he talks about uh, how... Um, Robert F. Kennedy's talking about how his uncle, JFK, told the American population, put yourself in their shoes. The, the, with the speech, he did something extraordinary, something that had never been done before. To me, it's his most important speech. It's one of the most important speeches in American history. And the thing that he did that was so unusual in that speech is he talked to the American people and asked them, to put themselves in the shoes of the Russians. Everybody else was doing the opposite at that time. They were demonizing and vilifying the Russians. And he said, no, we have to put ourselves in their shoes, in the, in the shoes of our adversaries if we want to have peace. We need to do that. It has to be a regular discipline. And at that time, most Americans, the, the zeitgeist of that era, I was born nine years after the end of World War II, and the zeitgeist of our era, and the, the, the governing assumption was that America had won the war, and now we were going to now we were going to rightfully dominate the peace. And he said something very, very different than America to to Americans that challenged that sort of patriotic assumption. And he said, "No, it was actually the Russians who won the war. They weakened Hitler and made it possible for us to march into Berlin." And he talked about the suffering of the Russians during the war and to legitimize their security concerns, which nobody was doing. Any, any show of military strength by the Russians at that time was portrayed as aggression. And what he was saying to the Americans is, no, they have legitimate security concerns the same as we do. And we need to understand those things. And he, he reminded Americans of the suffering that the Russians had had endured during the war, the unimaginable suffering. One in seven Russians had been killed during World War II. He said that, imagine, he asked Americans to imagine 
that all of the, the land, all of the cities, all of the towns from the east coast to Chicago had been leveled to rubble, that the forests and fields had been burned. And he said, that's what happened to Russia during the war. That's what they sacrificed for us. And they have legitimate security concerns to make sure that never happens again. And that speech turned around the American people. And they ended up supporting that. And it was one of the fastest ratified treaties in American history. And that is completely missing from the dialogue, to the narrative, the, the whole discussion today. Yeah, and um, RFK said, he said, look, I'm speaking to you today because the world is at a very similar crossroads to my uncle's time. He said nuclear tensions are at an extreme and dangerous level. And, and you know, very few politicians even understand that. Yeah. Um, he said, above all, while defending our own vital interests, nuclear powers must avert those confrontations which bring an adversary to a choice of either humiliating retreat or a nuclear war. To adopt that kind of course in the nuclear age would be the evidence of the bankruptcy of our policy or a collective death wish for humanity. So, yeah, this is really important in terms of diplomacy. How do you not corner... When you're in a war, how do you not corner your enemy... Yep. So he's either going to be humiliated or say, I'm going to press a nuclear button. I mean, yep. that's the big thing. So um, RFK talked about how peace comes from a completely different mental place and you have to completely change your attitude in order to de-escalate. You have to look at it completely differently, which he talked about in that clip, you know, put yourself in the enemy's shoes for a moment because they're exactly the same as we are you know, with various differences, but ultimately we're all human, we all have the same concerns. Um, it starts with talking. You have to be talking to, and he has great, you know, examples in there about... He, he said JFK met Khrushchev, Reagan met um, Brezhnev or whichever one that was. He, he, anyway, they met, their en- they met their enemies. He said, why can't Biden meet Putin? Mm, yeah, and he said, look, today our foreign policy is all about adversaries and threats. We've become addicted to comic book, good versus evil narratives. So peace will only start if we throw that out the window. It starts by seeing within others and within ourselves that which is not selfish but is brave and generous and idealistic and had good and has good intentions. And he cited JFK who said, our problems are man-made and therefore they can be solved by man. And another thing that JFK stressed was that our diplomats um, are instructed to avoid unnecessary irritants and purely rhetorical hostility. I mean, if we could get our media and our politicians to take that advice today, and RFK urged that upon Biden and the leaders today. Just think about Tony Blinken... He effectively grovelled to get a meeting with with the Chinese and Xi Jinping. They had a meeting. The Chinese did it in good faith. They they actually they they put you know flowers out that represented peace. Right? Xi Jinping gave him didn't have to come because he's just a Secretary of State. Xi Jinping gave him thirty five minutes. Blinken leaves China, and the same day Biden goes out of his way to say Xi Jinping's a dictator. Like. That's exactly that kind of unnecessary irritant and purely rhetorical hostility. Mm. Biden says, I'm going to be, I can show you I'm tough to the American people. I'm going to be an American arsehole, mm. right? Yeah. And what's China supposed to do with that? Mm. Um, and, yeah, the other thing that was really important was 
uh, Kennedy said, he said, when my uncle was president, one of his best friends, Ben Bradley, asked him, what do you want as your epitaph on your gravestone? And he said, he kept the peace. Bradley asked him to explain that and he said, the primary job of an American president is to keep the country out of war. When I, I, I fell off the chair when I read mm. that line. Because <clears throat> in our lifetime, mm. <laughs> right, I was born in 1974, it's been um, virtually non-stop American wars. Right? And especially wars. in the time that I've been involved in politics. It's just this has been the the defining feature of the world. Yet there was an American president who said the job of the American president is to keep the country out of war. Mm. Um, Now, just to lead into our final topic, there was a a paper that was written in 1988 um, by uh, two professors, one from Russia and one from the United States, so, um, you know, this was just as the wall was coming down and, and Relations so forth. with Oring, et cetera, yep. And, um, the end of the Cold War. You know, they reflected on the Cold War and very similarly talked about this kind of idea of the enemy image. It was called the enemy image of the enemy and the process of change. And he had to begin to dismantle this enemy image, which is just becomes ridiculous and cartoonish at a certain point, with truth. And he, uh, the article concluded that it resolution of war and resolution of conflict demands an obligatory condition of maximum possible truth in depicting the other side and oneself free access to information without distortion or secrecy. For this effort, this is the key thing, one needs political courage and psychological preparedness. That this realistic approach is the starting point for the transcending the image of the enemy and Sometimes you have people that come along that aren't necessarily the greatest political leaders in history. Um, and we're going to talk about one now, Simon Crean, in our topic, Simon Crean's Courage Lost in Modern Labour. And whilst, you know, he might not have set the world on fire, he did have... That's a good thing now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he did actually have, when it came to the issue of war and the Iraq War, he had political courage and quite a bit, actually, to stand against the heavyweights in his own party, yep. uh, Kim Beasley, Kevin Rudd, Michael Danby, to stand against the emerging darling of global labour, Tony Blair, uh, when Crean actually said, we will not support a war in Iraq. Um, I want to think the, the audience would have all, especially the Australian audience, would be familiar with the news coverage of Simon Crean Um, passing away this week and think about what pretty much all the media have led with. So Simon Crane was a politician for decades, right? He was a cabinet minister in the 80s, 90s, 2000s and 2010s. Like that's his longevity in four decades, across four decades. He did a lot of things, a lot of things. Every single tribute to him led with his opposition to the Iraq war. Why is that so striking? Because it's unthinkable today. It sticks out like something that's from another planet, another era. Mm -hmm. Because no politician... Can you imagine Albanese or Dutton Dutton (laughs) or any of their recent predecessors defying an American president and the British Prime Minister on a war? He did that, Mm. right? Now, we played a hint. We actually played a role in it. I'm not take, we shouldn't take all the credit for it. I'm not taking all the credit for it, but we were there 
Elisa, and we saw what we did. So we've written a tribute for him on the back page of our alert service this week. And here's, here's what happened. 9-11 happened in September 2001. Uh, Cream becomes a leader in November 2001. And post 9-11, if you're old enough to remember it, it was just war on terror, war on terror. The invasion of Afghanistan pretty much happened straight away. They began agitating for Iraq straight away. And in America, they passed the Homeland Security Act. And in Australia, John Howard unveiled seven bills, which was a suite of anti-terrorism laws. Now, we looked at those bills and were absolutely aghast because these were draconian fascist laws. The original version, terrorism um, involves already existing crimes, murder, arson, whatever, right? You don't need a crime of terrorism. There's already crimes to lock people up. But they introduced a crime of terrorism and the definition was all important. The original definition was so broad, it was shocking. Experts like Professor George Williams um, said, look, this, could, this, this terrorism definition could apply to a nurse protesting on a union picket line. That's how broad it was. That's what John Howard tried to bring in. So all, we swung into action. Um, a lot of civil liberties groups, etc., swung into action. But no one does things like the Citizens Party. And I tell a story in the uh, article about I personally went along with another office staff member to a meeting in Fitzroy, a bunch of old lefties, probably 30 or 40 people there. And it was about these laws. And they were all wringing their hands, oh, what are we going to do? And one was up the front with a whiteboard and saying, oh, who can call this? What politicians can we call? And someone would yell out a name and said, oh, who can call that person? And someone said, oh, I might. I'll try them and whatever. And I'm looking at this and going, no, no, this ain't going to work. And I get up and said, put down the Citizens Party, then call the CEC, put down the CEC for hundreds of calls to every single one of them. And they were like, huh? <laughs> but that's what we did. We set up a big phone bank in this office. We brought in as many of our... Um, external supporters as possible. We just bombarded the airwaves. That we put out a we we, we raised money for an ad in the uh, Australian newspaper in the middle of the year with two hundred signers on it or something of former politicians and people like including people like Dr. Jim Cairns, former Deputy Prime Minister, existing politicians, existing councillors, union leaders, all sorts of people. And the headline was "End Them, Don't Amend Them," mm. right? And it was a real battle against to stop these laws. But we identified that the way to stop them was the Labor Party because Howard didn't have the majority in the Senate and Labor could stop them, right, if Labor actually defied Howard. But this was a big deal because the hysteria about terrorism was Mm, everywhere, right? Every political instinct Labor had was to wave it through. Well, think about them today. They don't want to be weak on national security. Well, that was the whole thing. They didn't want to be called weak on national security, right? Um, So... We just bombarded. It was the first... We'd done it in other occasions in different ways, but this was the biggest one we'd ever done. We just bombarded those Labor senators with phone calls. We, we, we built up the support for that ad. And I was in discussion with um, Senator Faulkner's office. He was the leader of the Senate, right? And when I started talking to him and said, what's your position on the laws? They wouldn't give me one, right? They were really, they were really hostile even talking to me, but I kept calling them up and, and I kept getting this hostility. They wouldn't take a position... And I remember the day I knew that it was working because the guy at the office, at Faulkner's office that I was talking to, called me up. And he was nice as pie. He said, oh, boy, these calls of yours, they're, being, they're really successful. Oh, mate, you're shifting opinion in this building. He said, um, I think it would be a good idea if you called the Liberals too. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going, yeah, no, nah, mate. <laughs> right? They, they wanted the heat off them. But... But Faulkner led Faulkner's office and the Senate Labor people 
um, said at a certain point, no, this isn't going to happen. And that's when Crean led the opposition to that bill, right? And, he, and, and in opposing those, he, one of the bills went through, but the main one he opposed was the ASIO bill. In opposing that bill, he had to pre- be prepared to defy this BS media storm and all the accusations from Howard, oh, you're weak on national security, etc. That's what he had to stand in the face of. But he did. And then a few months later, with that same kind of defiance, he opposed the Iraq war. And he is now vindicated by history for that opposition to the Iraq war. But to prove what a big deal it was, as soon as they rolled him as leader and Mark Latham took over, the first thing he did was cut a backroom deal with Howard to pass the ASIO bill. And since then, a hundred, they were the first seven, 100 pieces of anti-terrorism national security legislation have passed, all of them draconian, Labor has caved on every single one. Labor has supported every single escalation to war, like they're doing now with AUKUS, right? The, 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 the um, uh, Labor is so cowardly by comparison. And so, as we say in the article, even though Simon Crean never set the world on fire, like you said, right, he has to go down in history as a giant compared to the people from both major parties who've come after him Mm. because that was an act of sheer political courage, but because he actually responded to a public mobilisation. Well, it shows how the courage of Australian citizens... We can give them steel in their spine. Exactly, steals that political courage in our leaders, and that's what we've been doing on our current banking campaigns and which people, um, you know, if you want to find out how you can engage, look in the box below, you'll find links to... What we're up to at the moment, you can contact us, call us. We can put you in touch with people locally that you can collaborate with. You can get involved. You can subscribe to our regular publication. Um, There's a donate button below too if you can support what we're doing. I think that's it for this week for the show. I think so too. So thanks for tuning in and see you all again next week. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Lisa. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.